All right, well, welcome. Let's get started. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are grateful to you, so thankful for what we've been able to learn this far, for the friendships and the acquaintances that we've uh, developed and made. Uh, we thank you for the time together we've had and for uh, this experience. And we ask you, Lord, as we continue to learn and grow, uh, that your spirit would cause us um, to desire and delight in your goodness and your holiness uh, that we may become like you through Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, I want to talk to you about happiness and holiness and the relationship between those two a little bit. And uh, the question I think I know the answer to, uh, do you want to be happy? Yes. Of course you do. Of course you do. Everybody does, right? Um, it's a no-brainer. Some of you studied in a classical context and you read Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics maybe around the 10th grade. Um, did, I teach, did I teach all that? Was I, were you in my class then? Okay. That's right. Okay. So, uh, and I know you all remember everything you learned in that unit, right? Do you remember what Aristotle says about happiness? He says, happiness is that at which all things aim. Happiness is that at which all things aim. Now, he wasn't using the word happiness because he didn't speak English. Um, he was using the Greek term eudaimonia. And, uh, but isn't that true? If we think of our, our whatever, without even defining the term happiness, happiness is that at which all things aim. So the question becomes not, do we want to be happy, of course. The question becomes, what is happiness, and how do we attain it? And I think it's evident that there is an abundance of confusion in our day about the nature of happiness and what constitutes the good life. What does it mean to prosper? What does it mean to have the good life? I think we're confused about that. I think we as a culture, we as a culture... This doesn't mean, our confusion doesn't mean that we're not active, that we're not involved with our friends, that we're not busy at work. It doesn't mean that we're not spending time with our family or meeting with our friends at Starbucks and um, aware of what's going on in the broader world or uh, what the social media fads are. We stay current with popular culture. We know who the trendsetters are. We know who the movers and shakers are. We know the media idols of our, day, of our age. We're not ignorant. We're confused. But these things are not teaching us how to live life well. Not even close. Most of what takes up the airwaves and our screen time is the absence of life, not the fullness of it. A constant reshuffling of relationships. A preoccupation with wiping out the opposition as violently as possible. The pursuit of spending the almighty dollar in a system that has been uh, uh, tagged by some as totalitarian consumerism. That's how we operate. So we see example after example of empty, self-centered existence around us. It's the air that we breathe. And I think it's very likely that all of you by now in your life have come to experience in some way 
the disillusionment with what the world offers you regarding happiness and the good life. You don't have to show me your hands, but I'm, I'm, I'm presuming that that's the case. You've experienced this at some level. You've detected this just by virtue of living in this world. And as a Christian, you are certainly aware of the bankruptcy of this kind of life, theoretically. Right? You know that this is incompatible with the good life that uh, Christ gives us. But this does not mean that you are immune, that I am immune, from the seduction and the danger of what this uh, presents to us. And so this siren song is very, very loud in our ears today. And we must resist it. We must resist it and learn to resist it. But this is easier said than done. Uh, Biblical scholar D.A. Carson laments that, quote, when it comes to knowing God... We are a culture of the spiritually stunted, he says. Spiritually stunted. So much of our religion is packaged to address our felt needs. And these are almost uniformly anchored in our pursuit of our own happiness and our own fulfillment. God simply becomes the great being who potentially at least meets our needs and fulfills our aspirations. If he can do that for us, then he's a good God. We think rather little of what God is like, what he expects of us, what he sees in us. We are not captured by his holiness and love. His thoughts and words capture capture too little of our imagination, too little of our discourse, and too few of our priorities. So by virtue of your baptism and confession as Christians, you are citizens of an upside-down kingdom ruled by a different kind of king and a different set of values. And so in this kingdom, the key to living the good life is paradoxical. And Jesus indicates this in in Matthew 16, 25. You know the verse well. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. So if you want to save your life, Jesus says, then you need to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will lose it. Say, find it. Yeah. Yeah. So biblically speaking, the soul, under the operative power of the Holy Spirit, is to be trained in the discipline of what? As Jesus indicates it. If we're going to really live, if we're going to live the good life, what do we have to learn to do? Yeah. Deny self. Die. Okay? Now that's a concept I know you all are familiar with. You've been taught that. You've heard sermons preached on that. It's the core of Christian discipleship. I'm not, tell, I'm not trying to be novel here, but I'm, I'm pressing into this uh, because we're talking about happiness here and holiness, and, and this, is, this is the crux of the matter here. So in this upside-down kingdom, one gains true happiness not by living for himself, but by losing his own life. And so speaking of his own death, Jesus parabolically pointed out that only when a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies... Is it then able to produce abundant fruit? He uses that agricultural image of a seed dying in the ground in order to produce something. And so, young men and women, I want to challenge you today uh, to make your life an experiment of teasing out all that this really means for you. Um, living this kind of life does not come naturally to us, as you have already uh, probably experienced. It is counterintuitive, and it requires disciplined cultivation under the grace of God. 
And further, though we are, are to work diligently in our pursuit of holiness, it is first and foremost the work of God. Every uh, pastor who's spoken to you so far has made that clear. Your holiness and your sanctification is first and foremost an act of God himself. Every godly farmer who plows his field, who puts the seed in the ground, who fertilizes and cultivates his crop, is acutely aware that in the final analysis, he is utterly dependent on forces outside of himself for a successful harvest. He knows he cannot cause the seed to germinate. He cannot cause the rain to fall and to water the seed. Or he cannot cause the sun to shine. But he pursues his task with diligence nonetheless. Why? Because he's looking to God for blessing and knowing that if he does not fertilize and cultivate the sown seed, his crop will be meager at best. And this is analogous to this um, relationship between God's work and our work when it comes to sanctification. And so as we take up the topic of happiness as it relates to holiness, we need to begin with a recognition that the classical understanding, and I'm speaking broadly here, not just we're going to talk about biblical uh, uh, characteristics of happiness. I'm speaking a little more broadly. In the, uh, up to the modern world, there, this notion of happiness is um, much different than what we understand it to be today. And I want to make that clear. I want to draw a clear distinction between how humans have understood uh, human flourishing and happiness and how that has changed uh, in our modern world from the past. And so for the cla- on the classical understanding of happiness, happiness was to be found in a life that's well-lived, a life of virtue and character, a life that manifests wisdom, kindness, and goodness. That's happiness on the ancient account, on the classical account. And so for these ancient sages, the life to dream and fantasize about, the life to lay in your bed and think about what you want for yourself, to hunger and seek after, to imitate and practice is a life of virtue and character. That was the root of happiness. And ultimately, we would add, of course, one that conforms to the will of God. Alexander Solzhenitsyn puts it plainly. He says, The meaning of earthly existence lies not, as we have grown used to thinking, in prospering, but rather in the development of the soul. So lamentably, this classical understanding of happiness has been replaced by something like, you tell me, if you were to go take a a, a poll today on the streets of your town and ask, what is happiness? And you hand them the microphone. What, do you, what answers are you going to get? Money. Okay. Money as a, a thing that brings happiness. Okay. But if they had to define happiness itself, how would, they, how would they define it? What do you think? Pleasure. Okay. Pleasure. Freedom. What, freedom. Feeling yeah, feeling satisfied. Right? Feeling satisfied. Uh, pleasurable satisfaction. Something along those lines. You would get answers probably that varied, but all kind of have that similar idea. Well, and that's, I think, indicative of uh, the fact that that's kind of how we think of happiness, right? That's what we, we use the term in that way, too, right? It's a happy meal. Actually, that's... <laughs> yeah. Or something like uh, an instant gratification of my immediate desires. It makes me happy because I got what I want and I got it quick. Right, And so we must beware, we must acknowledge that this view of happiness isn't true happiness. And again, I think uh, 
simply because you've been taught well and you've lived in this world long enough and you're Christians, you understand that already. But I think we need to call it what it is. Let's go ahead and give it a name and say it's not right uh, so we can make some progress here and be aware of that. Let's be clear about that. We must beware the tendency in ourselves, the cultural influences we have to think about happiness in this way. And we have to constantly fight against that. There is a massive conceptual chasm between this ancient notion of happiness that we've described and the one from which moderns typically operate. And so the classic sages of antiquity and their wisdom under common grace recognized the emptiness of this kind of living and sought to obtain a properly ordered soul through discipline and sacrifice. Now, of course, they didn't arrive at some biblical conception of holiness like we've been teaching, uh, but, but they certainly were able to recognize uh, the bankruptcy and the despair that this other view of happiness leads to. It's, it's a false happiness. It's fake. It's, it's not substantive. How much more then, how much more then, as believers and followers of Christ, with direct access to the very wisdom of God, Jesus himself, should we, as a first principle, base our pursuit of happiness and the good life on our relationship to the triune God, who alone can sanctify his people? So in the Bible, uh, the concept of holiness is bound up with the idea of wholeness or completion. Y'all know the Hebrew word, uh, term shalom, right? Shalom. And uh, even in modern day Israel, shalom is a greeting. It's like you would say shalom when you say hello. We would say hello or goodbye. It's a blessing. It's a greeting. So it has that sort of everyday usage. But in its, in its core, in its meaning, it's to be whole. It's a wish for someone to be complete an integrated self. And so the shalom of God is really about being complete and whole. Holiness is about wholeness. You are um, functioning in the way you've been designed to function. You are complete, mature. And so holiness and wholeness, shalom, are related. And this is where happiness and holiness really connect. To be holy is to be whole, complete, and satisfied. So in short, to be holy is to be happy in God. It's interesting that if you consider the biblical teaching on holiness, as we have been doing uh, already, uh, and you have gotten some excellent teaching, by the way, um, from Pastors Booth and Jeffrey so far, and more to come from Pastor Hatting for sure. I can't speak for myself. Um, it's interesting, when you study the, the Bible's uh, teaching on holiness, the lion's share of Bible talk about holiness isn't about what you should and shouldn't do. Isn't that what we typically think about, right? And you've already been uh, cautioned against this way of thinking, but it's, it's hard for us not to. I've got to be more holy, so I've got to do more right things and stop doing so many wrong things. Um, the lion's share is not about what you should and shouldn't do, though, of course, this is implied. But it's really about where you take your shoes off. It's about where holy ground is and in what proximity you are to that ground. See where I'm going here? It's about being in the presence of the holy, holy, holy God who holies or sanctifies His people. So the Bible teaches that holiness and the process of sanctification by which God makes us holy is really a matter of proximity, not about activity. Chad Bird says that holiness and sanctification is really more about your zip code 
than it is about your code of conduct. That is, it's more about where you are in relation to God than it is about some program of behavior. Holiness is a posture before it is a um, practice. Holiness is a posture before it's a practice. And it's, it's often misunderstood to be like a, um, a spiritual commodity, right? That can be obtained in greater quantities if you're willing to put forth the effort to obtain it. Like, I can get more holiness the more good I am, and I lose that commodity of holiness the worse that I am. So it's like this give and take kind of thing. It's a currency. That's often how we think about it, right? Um, it's like the gold gem theology of sanctification. If I can just get the pump more, if I, can, if I can put more weights on that bench press, right, and do a little more max the next day, then I'm going to increase my holiness. Um, that's not how it goes. So on this view of holiness, holiness is something I have. It's something I, I get, that I pay for, that I can lose. It's not something that I am. And so... Um, it's contrary to this notion of holiness as a state of being. And we're going to talk about happiness as such, right? It's the difference between happiness as a feeling, something I get and lose based on my external circumstances, rather than something that I am, something that defines me. It's a state of being, right? Uh, so I didn't get good answers from the uh, Aristotle question earlier, or any answers from this Aristotle question earlier. That's okay. I'll ask another one, and if I have to answer it myself, no problem. Okay, uh, I did this when I taught school too, right, Caroline? Especially in Caroline's class. Um, uh, so Aristotle goes on to define happiness. He says, "Eudaimonia is that at which all things aim." But he defines it in his genus species thing, right? You remember the genus species definition? His genus species definition for holiness was: Does anyone remember what is it? Is it a is it a feeling? Did he say, "Holy"? Uh, excuse me, happiness is a feeling. Is it a, what kind of thing is it? Like, let's give it a category. Yes? Didn't he describe it as a spirit that mediates No, he did not. Like, it's between the person and the object that they're aiming for. Okay, I'm, I'm thinking a Hig. Oh, yeah. Uh, not with regard to his ethics. His ethics, uh, his ethics theory was not that. You're talking about something else. That's good. That's good. Um, you're in the ballpark. Uh, happiness is feeling? No. It's a... What kind of thing is it? State of being? Okay. It's a choice. It's okay. Well, okay, it's a choice, but Aristotle didn't say, say as such. Although, um, he, he, he talks about how to, how to get, how to, how to be happy, and those involve choices. He, he, uh, some translations translate it as an activity of the soul. Happiness is an activity of the soul. So it's not just something you are, but something you also do, but it's what your soul does. It's not like you go to the grocery store, that kind of activity. It's an activity, it's a practice, it's a habit of your soul. But he goes on to say it's an activity of the soul in accordance with virtue, moral excellence. So it's not just your soul being active, it's the, acti the activity of a soul in accordance with virtue. You see how different that is than a, a modern understanding of happiness, right? We've pointed that out already, but I just want to, I want to press very hard into that because that's totally different than this feeling of pleasurable satisfaction versus 
an activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. We're talking about two very different concepts of happiness. And obviously, those two concepts are going to, uh, the implication of that, a life lived out of those two uh, views of happiness are going to look very different, I imagine. Right? It's not, it's not inconsequential. Um, so we are not holy by nature and we are not happy by nature. Our holiness is gift. It's grace. It's a borrowed sanctity. It's something God does to us and for us. It's an alien sanctification. And so, if we're going to be happy, and we need to, we need to be holy, of course, if we're going to be holy, we're going to need to be in close proximity to the one who can make us holy and who gives us the impetus for cultivating that holiness. Okay? Holiness is a matter of proximity. So when, when God says, um, Yahweh says, Be holy, for I, your God, am holy. It's not, it's not saying, All right, everyone, uh, benediction, now go back to your houses and go be holy. Go do holy things. Now, of course, it implies that. But it's more like saying, if I said to my son, Aaron, uh, Aaron, be my son, for I am your father. You see the difference in that? He's already my son. I'm telling him to be what he already is. Go be my son. Be my, be my good son. Because I am your father. And so it's not a commission to go do certain things. It's a commission to go live uh, into, live into the identity you already have. My son can't change the fact that he's my son. That's a given. And so my call for him to be my son means to go live into that. What does that mean? Go live into that. So um, let's, let's start thinking about it a little more like that. Being precedes doing. And Luther, here's Luther's great contribution, I think, to this discussion. Being precedes doing. All ethical philosophy before this was about doing precedes being. If you want to be a happy person, or if you want to be a good person, what do you, what do you got to do, Aristotle says? Go out and, and walk the old ladies across the street every day. Go out and do good things. And once you do good things, it becomes a habit. And then by doing those things habitually, you become good. Or virtuous. It's interesting in the uh, Pauline letters, Paul never argues to faith. He always says, he makes a declaration. He tells the church, here's what you are, and because you are this, here's the things you need to do. So, in that regard, Luther says, Christianity is, it reverses that order. Being precedes doing. I do because I am. Not the opposite of that. You Latin scholars in here, um, interpret this, uh, translate this phrase for me. I don't know if I'm going to get the, the J. Is J silent in Latin? Or do you say the J? Is it a hard J? J? Okay. Simul justus et peccator. Simul justus et peccator. What does that mean? Pastor Hattie? At the same time, justified and a sinner. Yes, yes. So Luther has this famous, this famous line uh, that he tries to, he's trying to express how all this comes together. What we want to separate, uh, uh, God puts together. 
we are at the same time saints and sinners. We are at the same time justified and sinners. And of course, I don't, we don't have the time today to tease this out. It actually got teased out quite a bit already in some of the lessons. But think about that, right? That's where we are. <laughs> uh, we're saints and sinners. You do because you are. Peter Kreeft um, wrote a book recently. Actually, it's a published series of letters that he wrote to his children called Before I Die. Letters that are very personal, but he also felt they would be uh, beneficial to the broader community, so he published it. And um, in one of his letters that he, that he wrote, he says, Do you know what I pray for every day? It's the same thing my father prayed for me every day. That you, his, his children, that you should be happy. Really, truly happy. And therefore, good since there is no other way to be really, truly happy, and therefore close to God, since He is where all goodness comes from. You see how that puts together all the things I've been trying to say, right? Holiness is about being in proximity to the Holy God, being connected with Him, close to Him, and of course that's happened for us in Jesus Christ. Um, And our happiness is rooted in the goodness that comes out of being holy because we're close to God. That's how all this is connected. And so what I want to do now for the remainder of the time is I want to talk about a hobgoblin to happiness. Does anyone know what the term hobgoblin means? What's a hobgoblin? You ever heard that term before? Yes, sir. Huh? Okay, in a sense, yeah. It's kind of like a, it's like a little demon that gets in there and, and uh, puts a kink in all the, the, the good plans that are supposed to happen. Okay? So uh, maybe I should, should have chose a better term that you were familiar with. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, a hobgoblin to happiness, I want to talk about uh, uh, this for just a little bit. And I hope maybe we can generate some conversation here. So since the 1960s in our country, there's been an increasing awareness among cultural critics, psychologists, religious leaders, etc., um, that we have become a culture filled with, a, with what has come to be called empty selves pretty self-explanatory. Empty selves. The emergence of the empty self is now an epidemic in America and in much of the Western world. And so the depression and mental health statistics that arise out of our situation are staggering and they continue to deteriorate. Psychologist Philip Cushman in his article, Why the Self is Empty, has, I think, put his finger right on the nerve of this problem. Listen to what Kushman says. And hear me now, because I want you to think about yourself here. I want you to think about the empty self and how that relates to you. Um, And I'm not saying you're empty selves, right? But I'm saying we all need to be aware of what's going on here. Um, He says, Kushman says, quote, The empty self is filled up with consumer goods, calories, experiences, politicians, romantic partners, and empathetic therapists. The empty self experiences a significant absence of community, tradition, and shared meaning, a lack of personal conviction and worth, and, hear this, it embodies these absences as a chronic, undifferentiated emotional hunger. A chronic, undifferentiated emotional hunger. Does that not describe a lot of what we see in in our world today? Christian churches even are unfortunately overly populated with Christians whose ideas about the good life are being shaped not by Scripture's vision for wholeness and meaning, 
but by the onslaught of cultural forces that feed them this dangerous competing vision of happiness and fulfillment. Although they may be spiritually regenerate in practice, this sort of Christian still thinks and lives like an unbeliever. And so despite their Christian commitment, they remain largely empty selves. So if we were to profile an empty self, we could say it's a person who is passive, sense it. What does it mean to be sense it? Overly preoccupied with sensory things, what I see, touch, taste, feel, smell. Right? And that's about it. That's, that's the world I live in, is things that I can experience through the five senses and not, not much anything else. Okay? A person who is passive, who is sensitive, who is busy and hurried, who is incapable of developing an interior life, such a person is inordinately individualistic. My little world. Infantile, like a baby. And narcissistic. The empty self is constituted by a set of values, motives, and habits of thought and feeling that makes the pursuit of true happiness and maturation in Christian discipleship very difficult, if not impossible. So you see the danger of the empty self, do you not? So let's tease out just a few of these characteristics in more detail so we can get a better idea of of the danger that this poses to happiness and holiness. And, you know, it may be a little uncomfortable for us because we may find in some of these characteristics aspects of ourselves, and, and, and I know I do, um, but, but that's okay. In fact, that's good. Because we have to be honest about the th- these things if we are to make progress. J.C. Ryle asserted, quote, wrong views about holiness are generally traceable to wrong views about human corruption. If a man does not realize the dangerous nature of his soul's diseases... He is content with false or imperfect remedies. End quote. And so let's proceed. When we say the empty self is infantile, what do we mean? So it's widely recognized that adolescent personality traits are really hanging on with people a lot longer today than they have historically in earlier generations. And sometimes manifesting themselves into the early 30s and even in some cases beyond that. So it's the image, uh, and I don't want to be insulting, but uh, you know, it's the image of the, the 30-year-old who's living in it with his parents in his parents' basement playing video games all day. Right? He still hasn't grown up. Okay? Um, and so emerging from a culture filled with pop psychology and schools and media that usurp parental authority and marketing that seems to treat everyone like immature teenagers, the infantile part of the empty self needs instant gratification. Comfort and soothing all the time. The infantile person is controlled by childish cravings and constantly seeks to be filled up and made whole by food or entertainment or consumer goods. And so such a person is preoccupied with sex, with physical appearance and body image, and tends to live by feelings and experiences primarily. For the infantile personality type... Pain, endurance, hard work, and delayed gratification are anathema. Pleasure is all that matters, and it had to be better. It had better be immediate pleasure. Don't make me wait for it. Boredom is the greatest evil. Amusement is the greatest good for the infantile person. Do you remember in Plato's scheme of the soul? 
three parts of the soul oriented to the three parts of the body, where does he place the infantile person? It's in the stomach and the genitals. The base cravings of humans. Sex and food. Right? And he says that's why, you know, I don't want to get into Plato's philosophy, but it's interesting that he, you know, he recognizes this. It's pretty obvious. The empty self is narcissistic. What is, it, what is narcissism? Well, it's an inordinate and exclusive sense of self-infatuation. You're in love with yourself if you're a narcissist. Okay? An individual who's preoccupied with his or her own self-interest and personal fulfillment. The narcissist looks in the mirror in the morning and says, You know, world, you just don't deserve me today. I'm going to get out there once again and, and bless you with my presence. Okay? And they say that honestly, not jokingly. I say that sometimes when my wife's in the room. Uh, but, um, you know, you handsome devil. The world doesn't deserve you. Uh, that's the narcissist, right? Um, narcissists manipulate relationships with others, including God, to validate their own self-esteem. And they cannot sustain deep attachments or make personal commitments to something larger than their own ego. Narcissists are superficial and aloof and prefer to play it cool and I want to keep my options open, right? Because I'm in control. Not willing to be tied down with commitments like marriage and family and responsibilities that limit their freedom. Self-denial for the narcissist is out of the question. The Christian narcissist brings a sort of Copernican revolution to the Christian faith. And so historically... uh, you know, the Copernican Revolution dethroned the earth and uh, elevated the sun to the, cent- the, center, uh, the center place. And so spiritually, like this, the narcissist dethrones God and puts himself in the throne. The narcissist evaluates the local church, evaluates the right books to read, evaluates other religious practices worthy of his or own time on the basis of how they will further his or her own agenda. God becomes another tool in the narcissistic bag of tricks, so to speak, along with the cool car, maybe a Tesla or a Toyota. Uh, workouts at the fitness center that fit into this, this you know, curated image and so on. Things that exist as mere instruments to facilitate a life defined largely independent of a biblical worldview. Narcissists see education even solely as a means to enhance their own careers. The, human, the humanities in general and general education that historically were part of a university curriculum to help people develop uh, uh, rational thinking skills, uh, to be intellectual and moral uh, in their virtues, uh, who studied a life directed at the common good. This just doesn't fit into the narcissist's plans. As Christopher Lash notes, he says, uh, quote, narcissistic students object to the introduction of requirements in general education because the work demands too much of them and seldom leads directly to lucrative employment. Well, I'm not going to take that class. It's not going to get me a job. So narcissists are pragmatists and have no time for soul work. What about passivity? The couch potato is the role, uh, is the role model for the empty self. Couch potato. You know the couch potato image, right? All right. And without question, modern Americans are becoming increasingly passive in their approach to life. If you haven't read uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman, please do that. 
uh, read that book and wrestle. Wrestle. I don't say agree with everything he says, but wrestle with it. We let other people do our living and thinking for us as passive people. The pastor studies the Bible for us. The news media does our political thinking for us. And we let our favorite sports teams exercise, struggle, and win for us. From watching endless reels of YouTube trivia and TikTok clips to listening to sermons, our primary agenda and expectation as passive people is to be amused and entertained and don't make me wait too long. Holidays have become vacations. Historically, a holiday was a holy day, an intrinsically valuable, special, active change of pace in which through proactive play and recreation you refresh your soul with those you love. A vacation is vacating. Even the language is passive. In order to let someone else amuse you, I'm checking out. The passive individual is a, is a self in search of pleasure and consumer goods provided by others at their whim. And such an individual increasingly becomes a shriveled self with less and less ability to be proactive and to take control of life. We, you know, the image of losing a grip. We're losing a grip on life. We're not getting out there and, and getting a grip. <laughs> passive, that passivity produces that kind of life. Life is slipping away from us. And many factors have contributed, I think, to the emergence of passivity. But in my view, and I'm, I know I'm old-fashioned or whatever, so bear with me, mindless screen time is the chief culprit. And I fight this myself. And all of us do. Mindless and sinful screen, screen time is the chief culprit. And its impacts begin in our day early in life for many of us. Around 20 years ago, there was already a concern that elementary school children watch an average of 25 hours of television per week in America. 20 years ago, television watching. This is before smartphones. And at that time, high schoolers were spending six times as many hours watching television as they invested in homework. Six times. Right? This was shocking to some. How do you think these numbers would translate in our own day? I didn't go do the research of the statistics and all that. I'm not even sure how to get good numbers anymore. Uh, maybe Pastor Jeffrey could give me some counsel on that. But um, how do you think those numbers from 20 years ago about television watching translate to our modern uh, situation with smartphones? Better? Worse? <laughs> I mean, I remember Pastor Hatting last year at this conference having a night talk at 10.30 asking about what is our, how are we using our phones, guys? Right? And I think it was, the average was something like six hours a day on Instagram for some. Is the right, and that's that's within our our group, right? I'm not here to. to I'm not, I don't want to draw lines that well, you know, three hours is good and four hours is bad. I'm not. That's what I'm talking about. There's a principle here I'm trying to to show. Okay, this is affecting us. This is creating passivity. Studies indicated then, 20 years ago, that such widespread television viewing induces mental passivity, retards motivation. And the ability to stick to something negatively affects reading skills, especially those needed for higher level mental comprehension. Weakens the ability to listen and stay focused and encourages an overall passive withdrawal from life. I'll just go sit on the couch and look at my phone. The widespread passivity of the empty self explains the proliferation of social media and streaming services and of an over-identification with sports teams and hero figures. Passive people do not have meaningful lives of their own, so what do they have to do? They must live vicariously through the lives of others. 
and celebrities become the codependent enablers of a passive lifestyle. The very idea of a Christian celebrity is an oxymoron. But for the passive, empty self, it is a spiritual life support system. And so think about this with me. In the late 1980s, with the baby boom generation, Americans experienced a tenfold increase in depression compared to earlier generations. So the trends that were already begun long before this thing came around, not as if this created anything new, it's humanity that's the problem, not technology, um, but our ability to have the capacity to manage that well and maturely we're, we're really in, in danger here. So if any condition increases this much in the span of one generation, then we are safe to say an epidemic has occurred, and this has continued into the modern technological age. And you and I are not immune to this. Okay, We're fighting this fight. A cause and cure must be sought, and, and at that time uh, this was concerning right, to the demographers and to the social critics and such, religious leaders, Martin Seligman claimed that the cause of this epidemic was the fact that baby boomers stopped imitating their ancestors and seeking daily to live for a cause bigger than they. That's where he put the cause of this problem. God, family, wants country, living for those things, and instead spent from morning to night trying to live for themselves and their own pleasurable satisfaction and so it's clear that such a strategy brings depression, not pleasure, or much else. Young men, you are particularly affected by the passivity that is created and generated by this cultural situation. It's a peculiar and particular danger for you. And I want to warn you, you've probably been warned before, but I'm going to warn you again. Um, in 2001, Hollywood publicist Michael Levin wrote a cover article in Psychology Today in which he argued that constant exposure to beautiful women has made men less interested in dating if they're single and in their wives if they're married. Levin cited studies in which men were exposed to non-pornographic pictures of very beautiful actresses. And then they were asked to rate the, the desirability of a typical woman in their social environment if single or rate according to their, of, of their wives. Okay? So in both cases, they were much less interested in the women available to them after having been exposed systematically. Okay? This is in 2001. Levin pointed out that for all of human history prior to the automobile and television, the average man was exposed to very few people in general and to very few extremely beautiful women in particular. Limited in travel and with no television, most men in human history learn to relate to women on, basis, on a basis other than their beauty, external beauty. But today, says, uh, said Levin, the average man sees plenty of absolutely gorgeous women every day, with or without clothes on, and gradually loses interest in the women in his real life. It's a real danger. We know that... Uh, Statistically, men are, are, are uh, uh, marriage. People are waiting longer and longer to get married. Partly because men are so passive, they're not going out and seeking wives. These findings aren't hard to believe for us. I think. I think we know this is true. What is surprising and relevant to our discussion 
is Levin's explanation for this loss of interest. It is not such that exposure um, to such visual stimulation makes men think their partners are less physically attractive than they were before. That's not the problem. Instead, it makes them think, my partner is fine, but compared to these others, why settle for this? Why not go, why not expect this over here? It's better. I can do a lot better than this. And so such an attitude uh, is the the attitude that's cultivated by this empty self and the passivity that this brings. And finally, uh, the... uh, Another, another issue here, or another characteristic, rather, of the empty self is, a, is sensate. Um, Christopher Lash, all, again, has observed, modern life is thoroughly mediated by, mediated by electronic images. Modern life is thoroughly mediated by electronic images. And Lash goes on to point out that today we make decisions and we even judge what is and is not real on the basis of sensory images. If it's on a screen, it must be real. How do advertisements work? How do, they, how do they get you? They're wanting to sell you something. How do they do it? You can answer that. Huh? Picture, a meme, a, a little video. Uh, doing what? What are they trying to do? What are they appealing to? Your reason? Are they trying to convince you that this is a better product than the other because of these rational propositions that hold true? There you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, they're going to appeal to your emotion. They're going to appeal to your sensate pleasure. Okay? Your gratification. You need the... I don't even... What's the biggest TV out there now? Seven? Okay. I had a 65-inch, but oh man, look, there's a 75-one out now. i got to get it. That's right. Um, Neil Postman, I, I recommended his book to you. Neil Postman complained that, and this is in the television era, quote, on television screens, discourse is conducted largely through visual imagery, which is to say that television gives us a conversation in images, not words. And, there's a, and he goes on to talk about why that's a very significant thing. Now, can we communicate in images? Of course we can. But that doesn't replace, that doesn't replace linguistic communication. There's something inherently uh, different about words and how we use words and relate to words. And it has clear implications for Christian theology because our God is, has revealed himself, how? In images? Word. Now, images, yes, but images caused by literary images, right? Images conjured up through words. And so uh, that's another talk, but we've got to think about that, right? So the emergence of the sensate self, the, the one who's preoccupied with taste, touch, smell, feel. What is the other one? There's five. Here, thank you. So are you going, why does he get to be up there teaching us? Good question. Uh, the emergence of the sensate self has produced two disastrous results. First, people no longer base their decisions on, a, on careful use of abstract reasoning. We don't think through things anymore as a people, um, especially when, with regards to assessing pers- uh, pertinent issues, very important issues. Um, 
nor are we as capable of doing, doing so compared to earlier generations when, when thought was communicated by writing and abstract ideas primarily. Primarily. Not by images. And secondly, people are coming to believe more and more that the sense-perceptible world is all there is. If I'm primarily sensate, this is, all, this is my experience with the world is just through my five senses, it must be all the world is. And we know the disastrous implications that worldview has, right? Um, in 1941... Harvard sociologist Petirim Sorokin wrote a book. I mean, think about 1941 America. What's going on? Yeah, Pearl Harbor, right? Pearl Harbor happens. And uh, we entered the, the Second World War that same year. So this is, this is the year he's writing, or he published this book. He published a book called The Crisis of Our Age, 1941. And in it, he claimed that cultures come in two major types. A sensate culture and an and a ideational culture. Okay. In a sensate culture, people believe only in the reality of the physical universe capable of being experienced with the five senses. A sensate culture is secular, this-worldly, and empirical. By contrast, an ideational culture embraces the sensory world but also accepts the notion that there's an extra-empirical, immaterial reality that can be known as well and it consists of the divine, the soul. Immaterial beings, values, purposes, and various abstract objects like numbers and propositions. Uh, Pastor Jeffrey, do you think numbers are uh, exist? Okay. A more Platonic view of numbers? Okay. I was just curious. Yeah. Numbers and propositions. They're real. Real things. But if you're sensate, right? Those things are just like floating in your mind, and that's all. So Sorokin claimed that a sensate culture will eventually disintegrate because it lacks the intellectual resources necessary to sustain a public and private life conducive of corporate and individual human flourishing. That's the death nail for a culture, he says. And this is precisely what we see happening to modern American culture. The widespread emergence of the sensate self has caused us to be shallow, small-souled people. And we Christians have to resist that. We have to know it's there. We have to understand ourselves in light of it. And we have to do what God has commanded us to do. Be holy. For I, your God, am holy. The the empty self, this is the final characteristic we'll cover. Um, The empty self is hurried, busy, and self-gorged with activities and noise. How much quiet do you have in your life? I'm talking about quiet. No phone. No motor cars. No single luxury. You know the song on Gilligan's Island? Okay. Um, How much quiet do you have in your life? No noise other than those that are natural. I don't know. It's a rhetorical question. Um, You need more of it. Whatever that is, I think you need more of it. We're busy, we're hurried, we're, we're frantic. I feel this myself. Uh, I talk about this often with my wife, but, and there's just this, right, this anxiety that comes with just living in the modern world. <laughs> and we don't even know where it comes from. It's, it's obscure, it's weird, but we stop and we ponder, like, what, am I, what am I anxious about? Sometimes we don't even know. Uh, Quoting uh, Kushman again, remember he says, the empty self is filled with consumer goods, calories, experiences, politicians, romantic partners, empathetic therapists. 
there's a significant absence of community. But he goes on to say it, it embodies itself as a chronic, undifferentiated emotional hunger. That's what we're talking about. I'm anxious and depressed, and I have no idea why. Nothing bad has happened to me that I can remember, like serious, but I just feel this emptiness. Part, partly because we're frenzied, we're hurried, we're distracted, we have no focus, no quiet. And so we have this deep, uh, the empty self has a deep emotional emptiness because it has devised inadequate strategies to fill that emptiness. We're distracting ourselves. A frenzied pace of life emerges to keep the pain and emptiness suppressed. One must jump from one activity to another and not be exposed to quiet for too long or the emptiness will become more apparent. And so such a lifestyle creates a deep sense of fatigue. Right? We're just worn out. I haven't done anything today, but I'm really tired. And passivity takes over. And so fatigued people either do not have the energy to read or when they do... They choose undemanding material. And shortly after noting that our capacity to think is on the decrease today because of these things, as a result of the empty self, um, uh, Robert Banks, a writer, correctly observes that frequently the modern individual is too rushed and too distracted to, quote, look for something to improve his mind, demand an effort from himself, or give rise to reflection, awareness, or sustained thought, end quote. Distraction and noise are enemies of an intellectual and spiritual life. Focus and quiet are its friends. Now, there is a communal dimension to the empty self. Can you imagine with me now, uh, J.P. Moreland and William Craig um, have, have teased this out. This is, let's imagine a church filled with empty selves. Can we do that just for a minute, a quick thought experiment? Imagine now a church filled with such people, empty selves. What will be the theological understanding, the evangelistic courage, the cultural penetration of such a church? If the interior life does not really matter all that much, why should one spend time trying to develop an intellectual, spiritually mature life? What's the point? If someone is basically passive, he will just not make the effort to read, preferring instead to be entertained. If a person is sensate in orientation, then music, magazines filled with pictures, and visual media in general will be more important than mere words on a page or abstract thoughts. If one is hurried and distracted, like we've talked about here, one will have little patience for theoretical knowledge and too short an attention span to stay with an idea while it is being carefully developed. And if someone is overly individualistic, infantile, and narcissistic, which we've also gone over, what will that person read if he reads at all? Books about Christian celebrities, Christian romance novels imitating the worst, that the world has to offer. Christian self-help books filled with slogans, simplistic moralizing, lots of stories and pictures, and inadequate diagnoses of the problems facing the reader. What will not be read are books that equip people to develop a well-reasoned theological understanding of the Christian faith and to assume their role in the broader work of the kingdom of God. Such a church will become impotent to stand against the powerful forces of secularism that threaten to wash away Christian ideas in a flood of thoughtless pluralism. Such a church will be tempted to measure her success largely in terms of numbers, numbers achieved by cultural accommodation to empty cells. Now, what's so distressing about this thought experiment is what? What distresses you about this? <laughs> this can describe, right, so much of what we see in modern evangelical church culture. 
And we're not immune to it ourselves. Right? This is the, this is the reality of it. We have to be aware. And, and this is really my goal, is to make us aware of these things. Give, give names to them. Let's call these things something. Okay? They're here. They're before us. So, in conclusion here, guys... Um, These, uh, these hobgoblins to happiness, this empty self and all its characteristics are, are things that we are susceptible to, even as Christians. These are dangers for us that we need to avoid. And so I hope what I've been helped, I hope I've uh, brought these to light for you. Maybe some of these dangers that were hiding in the shadows in your life, I hope they've kind of come to light for you and you can see, oh, wait a second, uh, that hobgoblin over there, I need to stay away from. Or, oops, I'm way too far in the dark. I need to get back into the light. Uh, that's part of my goal. Um, as we conclude, I just want to tie a few things together. So, uh, back to the beginning when we just kind of did an overview about holiness and happiness. Remember, the triune God and our proximity to Him is the ultimate source of our holiness and therefore our true happiness. Our pursuit of happiness necessarily then involves our pursuit of the holy, holy, holy God as the most desirable thing we could ever attain. Let me read you uh, just a couple of quotes from Michael Reeves in his book, uh, Delighting in the Trinity, and I recommend that to you highly. He says, Christianity is not primarily about lifestyle change. It is about knowing God. Pastor Booth talked about this in his talk. To know and grow to enjoy Him is what we are saved for. Nonetheless, getting to know God better does actually make for far more profound and practical change as well. Knowing the love of God is the very thing that makes us loving. Sensing the desirability of God alters our preferences and inclinations, the things that drive our behavior. We begin to want God more than anything else. And finally, a quote from C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. I'm sure many of you have read that. Um, That's one of those books you can read every year and always benefit from. Here's what Lewis says about holiness and happiness. God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel for our spirits. uh, The fuel our spirits were designed to burn. Or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us happiness and happiness and peace apart from himself. It's impossible because it is not there. There is no such thing. And so what do you want, Christian? Young men and women, what do you want? Do you want to be happy? Well, that means you must be holy, which means you must be near to God. God has come near to you in Jesus Christ. Hold him fast and do not forsake him. May I give you a blessing? Young man, young woman, may you continually learn to experience the good life that only God can give in Jesus Christ. May you prosper in all that you do, because your delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, may you meditate day and night. May you be like a tree planted by streams of living water that yields its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. May you experience the true shalom of God as you continue to grow in holiness and happiness all the days of your life to the glory of God. Amen.